We come to a, an interesting text this morning in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, as we've been walking through the life and the ministry of Jesus, as John relates it to us in his unique way and from his unique perspective. In uh, John chapter 8, the first 11 verses, we reach a, uh, a somewhat controversial passage, not in, in the content as much as in whether it should be there at all. We come to a text that is well known and often quoted, it's... Uh, the NIV and the ESV, the title that's given over the top of it is The Woman Who's Caught in Adultery. Um, it's a well-known passage, the passage where Jesus says, uh, you who are without sin, you be the first to cast a stone. But the problem with the text is that, that this particular piece of Scripture is probably not an original part of John's Gospel. And it probably wasn't even written by John. It, uh, the earliest and best manuscripts that we have omit this passage entirely. There are none of our early Greek fathers who commented on the Scripture and preached from them. There are none of the early Greek fathers who used this text at all. Now, there is reason to believe. One of the reasons I, I titled my introduction here to preach or not to preach. Um, should, should I handle this text or should I skip it and go on since it's, it's not in those early portions of the Scripture? But I do believe that there is reason to believe that it is a genuine piece of Jesus' life in history and that it is a piece of oral apostolic tradition that genuinely comes from Jesus. If it was written by one of the apostles, it fits better in the life of Luke, in the mouth of Luke, in terms of his uh, vocabulary and his style and the things that he tends to address in his writings. And there is some early support from some of the Western manuscripts and some of the Western fathers, people like Ambrose and Jerome and Augustine all handle the text. And so there is some support. I've rallied some quotes for you. I've rallied some support in terms of why I choose to handle this text this morning, which obviously I'm about to do. D.A. Carson a noted New Testament scholar, trusted source, said that there's little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. Even if in its written form, it did not in the beginning belong in the canonical books, or in particular to the book of John. B.F. Westcott says that beyond doubt, it is an authentic fragment of our apostolic tradition. Or James Boyce, who chose to preach on this text I know of at least twice, or A.W. Pink, who says that it is, there's not the slightest doubt that this is part of the inspired Word of God. Or John MacArthur, who in his commentary uh, includes the passage and chooses to comment on it, saying it's not possible to be absolutely certain that it was added later, or that it's not a, part, a legitimate part of the tradition. There's nothing in the text that contradicts the rest of the Bible. There are no new doctrines pulled out of it. If there was some new doctrine that was only found here in this passage, I think I would skip it and we wouldn't go there. But there's nothing in here that contradicts anything else in Scripture. There's nothing, no new doctrine. And there is in this passage a portrait of Christ, of His character, of His words, of His person, that is consistent with the picture of Jesus that we get across the rest of the New Testament and the Gospels. And I think there is something here that I want to touch on that a church, I think, that we need to, to see and to hear. Again, it's not unique to this passage, but it jumps out at us in this passage. And I want to, uh, want to address it. So I'm going to. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. 
Jesus went up onto the Mount of Olives. And then early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst or among them, they said to him, teacher, rabbi, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she answered, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning to you and to what I believe is your word, to the life of Jesus. Because we want to be like Jesus. We want to be Christ-like. And I pray this morning, Father, as we come to this text, we ask your grace that it would be upon us, that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to Jesus and who he was and Help us to be like Him, to be full of His Spirit, to reflect His life and His grace, that we might be instruments in Your hand for the salvation of the world. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've mentioned, as we've walked through Jesus' years of public ministry, that very quickly Jesus began to have a dialogue with the leadership the Jewish leadership, the powers that be of His day, because Jesus would say things and Jesus would do things. He would do things on the Sabbath and He would forgive people's sins and He would say things and He would do things. He would teach authoritatively and He, was, he would take this position in their midst and they would respond to Him. They found Him hard to take. They didn't know what to think of Him. And some of the things that He said that He did, they didn't jive with their understanding of, of the law and of religion and of the status quo. And so they would, they would confront Him and they would ask Him questions and they would come after Him. And Jesus at times is responding to them in the things that He says. And we have another passage before us this morning where this dialogue continues because the Jewish leadership, the Jewish authority, comes to Him presenting Him with another piece of case law. This is sometimes how they came after Jesus. They you know, we have legal and, and moral laws and, and theoretical law that we hold up here. And it becomes interesting when you get a, a, a particular case and you go to seek to apply that law, that moral uh, standard to a particular situation. And so they would bring these to Jesus. You know, they confronted him about taxes. And Jesus, you know, in this particular case, and Jesus says, render under Caesar. 
uh, unto Caesar the things that are his. Or they come to him and they say, okay, Jesus, you believe in heaven and resurrection, all this. Well, well what if there's this woman? And you know how the law goes. The law says if the, if the woman's husband dies and then her, his brother has to marry her. And say this goes on and she marries seven different brothers and then they get to heaven. Okay, whose husband? You know, which one is her husband? You know, and Jesus, so they would come to Jesus and give him these case laws. Okay, fine, here's the principle. Now you tell us how. And so they come and they bring this case and they drop her at his feet. They have not come in genuine pursuit of wisdom. They're not, they're not here to get from Jesus help in sorting out a very difficult case. These men are faithless. They are not genuine. They are not sincere. And so they drop this woman at his feet in front of the crowd. I mean, you can just imagine Jesus is again mid-sentence and they drag this woman in. You know, mid-sermon, he, they bring her in and drop her on the floor and say, okay, Jesus. She was caught, we're told, in verse 4 and 5 in the act of adultery. The principle in the law is this, they tell Jesus. You know, you know Moses' law. The principle of the law is this. Such a woman caught in such a crime is punishable by death, by stoning. What do you say? In verse 6, we're told explicitly they're testing him. Trying to trip him up. Trying to catch him. To stump him. To discredit him in front of the crowd. And to have some grounds on which to accuse and arrest him and to come after him. And he's in a tough spot. This is difficult. If If he contradicts the law of Moses... And obviously, he presents himself in front of the crowd, in front of the leadership, in a very difficult position as a lawless one, someone who, who you know, overthrows Moses and doesn't take the law seriously. And on the other hand, if he upholds the law of Moses in this particular case, and he calls for the woman's death, I mean, how does that fit into Jesus' ministry? How does that fit into his reputation for mercy and grace? How does that fit into the gospel in this moment of gospel history? This is a complex and political and legal, and there are political implications because you can't, you can't execute someone apart from the Roman authorities' approval. And so there's political implications and legal and moral and theological implications and They don't really want Jesus' help. They want to trap him. They understand how difficult this is. And then we have this poor woman. The object lesson. Dragged in front of the crowd, as we would say, busted. As we're told in the text, caught in the act. Any person's worst nightmare. If we were to drag you out of the pew this morning and drop you in front of the crowd, And declare to everyone what your worst, your deepest, and your darkest, and your most hidden sin is. And here in front of the crowd to be judged. Exposed. We can picture her, and she's been pictured throughout history. The the artists uh, in history have loved to paint this picture. Of the accusers standing around with stones in their hands and anger on their face and, and anticipation and, and Jesus standing there and the woman. And the woman is always pictured. I've seen pictures of her standing, kneeling on all fours and face down. In every picture, she's either standing, when all of them, her head is down. Yeah, or on all fours or 
head is down or on the ground. And most of them, her hand is up, covering her face, hiding in her shame. Caught in the act. You know, we're told in verse 4, caught in the act. There's no defense. She's clearly guilty before the law of Moses. The Jewish leadership stands smug. They think they have Jesus impaled on the horns of a dilemma. And they've got Him. They finally got Him. Get out of this one, Jesus. It's fascinating. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do this text. It's so Jesus to me. That's when you read Pink. Pink isn't A.W. Pink. Um, he's a writer, he, he's not always, I don't always follow him as the strictest scholar, but, but I love his spirit. And, he's just, and, he, and I t- tend to agree with him when I read this text. He, just, he says, can you read this as a follower of Jesus and read all the rest of it and not say there's, there's so much Jesus in this text that just rings true. Right? And here's Jesus in this predicament as they stand there and he's you know, halfway in a sentence and they, they do this to him. And, and it says that he stoops down And he starts to write on the ground with his finger. And he's silent. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't answer them. And we know that it gets a long enough pause because the next sentence in verse 7, it says, and and they kept on asking him, and in different translations, it's like they, they kept calling for an answer. They pushed him. So Jesus is pausing long enough that they're getting impatient. He doesn't say anything. He writes on the ground. Then he stands up. I mean, it, it's fascinating. What, what did he write? First of all, we'll just say, what did he write on the ground? Because everybody wants to know. Right? It's the only time in, in, in anywhere that Jesus wrote anything. He didn't write any books. He didn't write any of the Gospels. He didn't write anything down. All the people around him wrote everything for him. So Jesus doesn't write anything, but he clearly reads and writes because he knows the Scriptures inside and out. He gets down. What does he write on the ground? I don't know what he writes on the ground. Everybody has speculated. Maybe he... Maybe he was just stalling for time and he, and he wanted God's wisdom and so maybe he was simply praying. He bent down and took a moment to say, Father, give me your wisdom because this is tough. It could be that he was writing on the ground. Some have speculated maybe he was writing out the Ten Commandments and he knows the hearts of those around him. And so maybe he was writing out the commandments of those he knows, particular of these guys, have broken. Maybe he's jotting out in Hebrew the commandments of God. Maybe he's just simply giving them enough time in his presence. Enough silence and enough time to feel the hypocritical nature of their venture. To feel their wrongness in his presence. Or maybe he's writing, some have suggested, he's writing a particular verse. And many verses have been suggested. Maybe he's writing this one or that one. I put one in there, second point in your outline. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness, which is a command that every person standing around him was guilty of at that moment. And given the writing of it in a a little bit of time, you know, maybe, I don't know. See, this is the thing, we don't know what Jesus wrote. But he does this, he stands up after giving them that time, he stands up, and I imagine, again, it doesn't tell us, I imagine him catching the eyes Of each of the guys standing there with a stone and a smug look on their face. And he says, let the one who among you has no sin be the first to throw your stone. So Jesus throws a stone out into the pond of their self-righteousness. 
And he kneels down. And he gives them more time. Now what are they thinking about? They're not thinking about her anymore. At that moment, Jesus has forced them to examine their own hearts. He says, fine, you want to stone her? If that's the law, he doesn't contradict the law of Moses. He doesn't tell them what to do, in a sense. He just gave them a parameter, you know, a stipulation. Fine, throw stones. Which of you has not sinned? You throw the first one. And he kneels down. And in the pond of their self-righteousness, you know, the ripples go. They're not looking at her anymore. Now they're examining their own lives. Can I throw the stone? I'm going to throw the stone. No, I'm not. Right at that moment, it's, it's, it's genius. It's pure, powerful wisdom. We're told in verse 9, they went away one by one. Beginning with the older ones. Right, you can imagine them glaring at his head because Jesus stands up after ignoring them and writing in the sand, which bothered them, and they pushed him for an answer. He stands up and he gives them his statement. And he kneels back down, and in a sense, he ignores them again. He's giving them the parameter. Do, do it if you want to. And he kneels down and he starts writing again. Who can write in the sand and not be looking at it, right? You're down looking. He's, they're looking at the top of his head. You know, he's made his statement. They stand there looking at the top of his head. You could just imagine them glaring at the top of his head and angry and thinking, forced to confront themselves. And one by one, they drop their stones, either proverbially or literally, and walk away. And it starts with the oldest ones first. I don't believe that these details are put in haphazardly. Why the older ones first? Many of you have heard it. I think it's obvious and I think it's true. Older ones, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm you know, 48. I'm almost 50. You live long enough. The longer you sin, the more you sin. It's just, in some ways, it's just simple math. Right? The sheer weight of it. The longer you live, there, there's way longer to have lived with their sin. But also, I think as you get older and you have had any sense of conscience and have sought to, to fight sin in your life and to be right and to follow and honor God, you have a deeper and richer sense of the tenacity and depth of the problem of sin in your own life. So the older ones, who are wise enough to know, live long enough to know, drop their sins, drop their stones, wish they dropped their sins, and walk away. So before Jesus is done, he has shown his accusers. All of us has broken Moses' law. They dragged her in on this particular item. But before they were done, Jesus showed them that all of us have broken Moses' law. You who are not lawbreakers, you who are truly righteous before God's throne. You know, the woman was guilty. There's no doubt. Her sin was scandalous. There's no doubt. She needs a Savior. Becomes obvious. 
But there is a genius in this passage, a wisdom of God, that with a pause and with a glance and with a single sentence, he exposes the self-righteousness in those who would judge others. Right? He undoes them, disarms them, literally disarms them. And the most self-righteous among them loses his nerve. And at the sight of the top of Jesus' head, turns and walks away. Slinks away. So Jesus is left alone with the woman. Augustine, who does comment on the passage, says that the two are left. Misery and mercy. The two are left. And it's interesting to me that as all the accusers leave and they slink away and it all kind of melts away and we don't really know what happened to the original crowd he was teaching, whether they drifted away or not or it was just the accusers, but it seems like in this sense that the world fades and it's just Jesus and the woman. The two, it says, are left alone, standing there with this woman. She doesn't take the opportunity to slip away herself. And I always found that You know, if I were her who were literally dragged into the presence under, in a sense, arrest. And as the accusers all drift away, that she doesn't take her opportunity to slip into the crowd. She is embarrassed. She is ashamed. I would be looking for the nearest exit. But she doesn't. She sits there with Jesus. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Somehow she sits there with Jesus and she feels safe. She's not afraid. She sticks close to Him. I don't think she wanted to leave. Those who think they are righteous, those who thought they were righteous, hated Him and hated looking at the top of His head and walked away. But those, the one who stands there as a sinner, sinners love to be around Jesus. I mean, you read it all through his ministry. He was accused of being the friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's proverbial. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, don't you know what kind of woman it is who's crying on your feet and wiping your feet with, you know, manhandling your feet? Don't you know? Why are you letting this sinner be around you? You know, Jesus would go to dinner at their houses. Why? The sinners love to be near Jesus. Prostitutes, adulterers, extortionists, traitors. Man, they all wanted to be around Jesus. One reason is in verse 11, he says to her, 10, 11, who has condemned you? She says, no one. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. That's one reason why sinners would want to be around Jesus. Right? Neither do I condemn you. He's the only one in the crowd who didn't have a stone in his hand. Right? He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't judge her. He offers her love and acceptance. He speaks gently to her. He speaks kindly to her. And he speaks into her life in a way that she can hear it. He gives her grace when she deserved judgment. And there's no doubt she deserved judgment, but he gives her grace. Right? I, I want us to see, because we think of Christ's likeness and we think of his 
holiness and His purity and His absolute perfection before the law as He does everything that God ever wanted Him to do and says everything that God ever wanted Him to say. Jesus is righteous and perfect and the only one before God and before the law who is indeed self-righteous. But I want to see that to be Christ-like is not just to be perfect morally, but this is Christ-likeness. That, that in His perfection, in His the only one who was in the crowd who actually had the right to judge her loves her and offers her grace. This is Christ-likeness, mercy and grace. You know, the question that we have to ask and that runs through Jesus' ministry is that how, it, how does He do it? Why doesn't He judge her sin? You know, it's, it's, it's the question that runs through his ministry. It's, it's what's driving the Pharisees and the, and the scribes crazy. Why won't you judge these people? Why do you let them touch you? Why would you eat with them? Why would you not pick up a stone with us? You know, it drives them crazy. Why doesn't Jesus judge this woman's obvious sin? And hear me, it is worthy of judgment. Let me give you two reasons that I think this is so. Two reasons that I think Jesus doesn't do it. And that marks His ministry and that I believe should mark our ministry. And the first is this. The woman is not a Christian. The woman is not born again. The woman is not a follower of of Christ. Right? She does not have the Spirit of God. And this is one of the rubs that we as Christians and we who have tasted the first fruits of the Spirit and in whose lives He is at work and who has opened our eyes to see the truth not only about Jesus but about righteousness. The one who has began a good work in us and who will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. You know, the one who has by His Spirit begun to Make us better than we were, than we are, apart from Him and His grace and His Spirit at work within us. You know, that, that we who, who, who see what is true and what is right and is pursuing it, when we stand in our posture toward the world, who does not know Christ and does not have this Spirit, the Holy Spirit at work within them, they're not born again. They don't, they don't even profess to follow Jesus. It's absurd in some ways to expect such a person who's not born again to live by Christian and biblical standards. There's a sense in which they are held to those standards by God and they will be held to those standards. But at the practical level of ministry where we live and where we are right now, we'll talk about that in a minute, it's absurd to think or to expect them to live up to and fulfill biblical standards. I mean, I'm full of the Holy Spirit, at least I like to, to believe that I am, and I struggle day by day to follow Him and to honor Him and to do what's right and to think what's right and to feel what's right. And if we who have the first fruits of the Spirit struggle after righteousness, here then would we stand to a world that is lost in their sin, in bondage to sin, without the Spirit, without the Savior, apart from God, and lost. And we stand over them and hold them to the same standard 
say, why not? What am I saying? I'm saying this. By definition, they're not a follower of Jesus. They don't want to live to biblical standards. They, they can't live to biblical standards. They're in your bulletin under, I think it's the third point, Romans 8. Romans 8, 7, he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. If you read Romans 8 in the first section there, it's clear in verses 10, 11, 12, that it's the person who has not the Spirit of Christ and is none of His, or does not belong to Him. He who has not the Spirit of Christ and is none of His. The mind is set on the flesh. That mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. It won't. So don't be surprised when it don't. Right? So when we deal with people that don't know Jesus, what am I saying? I'm saying we shouldn't be surprised at the depth of their struggle with sin and their involvement in it. They're not following Jesus. They're not reading their Bible. They're not submitting to God's law. They can't. They don't see it. They don't know it. They don't love it. And they have not His Spirit. So, I want us to understand that but for the sovereign grace of God, there go I. There, there goes you and me. But for the grace of God, we're lost. So, when Jesus encounters deeply sinful people, I think it is right and, and instructive to see that He does not recoil. He does not act surprised. He does not put his hand to his mouth and go, oh my goodness. Right? He is not surprised by their sin. He doesn't balk at it. He doesn't run from it. And he doesn't jump all over it. He encounters deeply sinful people and he loves them. It's a marvelous and amazing thing. He loves them. He's gentle. With them. He is gentler with the sinners than he is with the righteous. You want to get in somebody's face. There's a crowd who Jesus got tough with, but it wasn't her. And it wasn't the tax collectors and the sinners of various stripes and kinds. Apart from the Spirit and the new birth, the whole world is in bondage to sin. And Jesus is not surprised by it, and he, and he is gentle and he is loving toward those who are lost. The second reason I, I think that he doesn't judge in these moments of grace is that it's not the right time. Right? He doesn't judge this woman's obvious sin because this is not the time. It's not the time for judgment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And He has set a day when He will judge the world in righteousness. The Scripture is clear from Genesis to the end of Revelation. Throughout the New Testament, God has set a day when He will judge the world. That's His job. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll do it. I'll take care of it. I'll set it right. I'll make it what it needs to be when the time comes. That's my job. But Jesus is the one who tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus knows the day is coming. He's the one who says the day will come when all who are in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of Man and they will rise. And they'll stand before the Father to receive what was done in the body, whether good or bad. They'll be separated out. He says there is a day 
There is a day, but he also says this, I think, here and elsewhere, he says this, this is not that day. The time of judgment will come. It's not your job. And today is not the day. Today is a gospel day. Today is a Jesus day. Today is a day for grace. Today is a day Jesus, while he at the same time teaches that the day of judgment is coming, he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over the lost. And he says, these crowds of of lost people, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he loves them. And he wants, you know, he, he is gentle with them. And he wants them to be saved. And so he weeps over the lost. And he loves the lost. And he goes after the sheep. The day will come, but this is not the day. The Bible says this is the day of salvation. This is the day of gospel. This is the day to offer the possibilities before that day comes. This is the day to rescue the lost and to go after them and to love them. John 3.17, this is just five chapters earlier, and you'll see John 3.17 is the verse after. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then He goes on to say, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. It's not my mission. And we see it right here as He deals with this woman. He's not here to judge at this moment. It's not a moment of judgment. I did not come to condemn the world. I came that the world might be saved. Through me, And I would, I would challenge us to put your name in that sentence. Not that we can do what Jesus did or that we're the Savior. But Jesus says, as I was sent into the world, so send I you. And Jesus says, you are my ambassadors. And, you will, and, 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 and on that day, you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the, and the end of the earth. And I think we, our mission is Jesus' mission. And God did not send Robert into the world to condemn the world. It's not my job. That's not why I'm here. He sends me into the world in order that the world might be saved through me in as much as I'm an ambassador for Christ and I offer Jesus and the gospel and show Jesus to the world. This is not the day and we are not the judge. And Jesus says, I believe, drop your stones. Drop your stones. You who are without sin, you cast the first stone. It's not your job. You don't stand on the right moral ground for this job. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty in His own body for the sin of anyone who will put their faith in Him. Who will receive Him. This is good news. This is the good news that the church has to offer to the world. That Salvation has come. Mercy has come. Grace is available. Yes, you're all sinners. You walk out the door and you shouldn't be surprised by what you see. You are wading into the darkness. right? You're wading into a lost sea and, and shining a light that says, you know, despite where you are, despite what you've experienced, grace is here. Salvation is available. He's taken away the ground for judging. People need Jesus. People need to hear the good news. They need to taste grace. They need to experience the love of God through His people. The world needs to experience just what this woman experienced at the hand of Jesus. 
Or they don't run away and slink away when they have the chance. But they're actually attracted to something here. There's something that's in Jesus that wasn't in the crowd that surrounded her or holding stones, you know. Jesus wasn't holding a stone. Right? Jesus was her Savior. Jesus saved her. And the world, in a sense, needs to, to feel that from us. That, to be Christ-like in the way we present Jesus to the world. That we make Jesus attractive and desirable. Right? We've got the best job in the world. We're free to love sinners. We're free to love everybody. We're free to to come alongside of them with the gospel. We're free to love sinners knowing that I'm the worst. That was always Paul's posture to the day he died. Here's Here's a trustworthy saying. God has sent His Son into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. And so we come alongside of people as as hungry people who have found bread, and we tell them, as fellow hungry people where there is bread, or as fellow uh, people who thirst for life, and telling them where we found a fountain of life, or as one lost sinner telling another where to find grace. At the feet of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, sinners who have found mercy. My friend, the other thing that you see in here, I think this is a word for us to stand in Jesus' place as we as a world, as a church, posture ourselves with the lost world. And we posture ourselves like Jesus toward that world. But some of us, when we read this story, identify mostly with the woman on the ground. Right? And there's some of us who would feel caught or feel exposed or know that we, we stand there at the feet of Jesus. And for, for you, my friends, this is one of the best stories in the Bible. What better story could there be if you feel like that woman? How does Jesus look at you? How does Jesus treat you? What does Jesus offer you? What does Jesus have to say to such a one? Who has condemned you? No one. Neither do I condemn you. I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. Right? There's mercy. There's grace at the feet of Jesus. Which is why he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. Heavy, you come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. For that guilt, for that shame, for whatever it is you've done. And put any sin in there. You know, that one is the sin of the day. But put anyone there. If you will put your faith in Jesus and receive him as your savior from your sin, he's, he saves us from it. Let me, as I close, just be very clear. Jesus does not approve or condone sin. Sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Right? It was the Father's love to cover the debt of sin that put Jesus on the cross. The Bible tells us that in His own body He bore our sin on the cross. Right? Jesus doesn't think it's funny. Jesus doesn't take it lightly. Jesus doesn't not care about sin. He will, he will literally bear it and the Father's wrath against it on our behalf to deal with the seriousness of it. And that's not what's going on here. Jesus calls her behavior sin. He tells her, go and sin no more. He he calls it by its name. Go and sin no more. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't excuse it. But He is gentle. 
He is forgiving. He's full of hope. He's full of life. He lifts her up and he gives her life back to her. He erases her shame and, and, he, and he loves her and he embraces her and he sends her off to live a new life. The word of forgiveness is always and invariably followed by a call to holiness. Right? The word of forgiveness is always and invariably followed by that call to holiness. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But brothers and sisters, for us who believe in all the, the Scripture tells us, that order is extremely important. That the word of forgiveness precedes the call to go and sin no more. That release from the guilt of sin and the forgiveness that accompanies the call to leave. That mercy is the power and the motive for holiness. That the forgiveness, the freedom from sin and from it flows from the gospel. Right? And she gets up with a greater desire for holiness and when she entered the scene. Freedom from sin flows from the gospel. That would be such a terrible thing. I tell you. I would say this is no scripture. If it said Jesus says. Go and sin no more. And then I will not condemn you either. That is bad news. That is bad news for anybody. 1 John 3.1 tells us. Everyone who thus hopes in him. Purifies himself. As he is pure. That's the order. Hope in him. Find forgiveness. Find mercy. Find grace. And then be holy as he who calls you is holy. Because of his mercy. Because of his grace. God is not looking for more judges. He's looking for ambassadors. Ambassadors of the gospel. He wants us to show them Jesus. He wants us to show them the Jesus that we know. The Jesus who has loved us. The Jesus who has shown us mercy. The Jesus who day after day His mercies are new. The Jesus who accepts us. The Jesus who embraces us. The Jesus that we need not run from. That we do not fear. The Jesus who is gentle and kind with us in our sin and in our failure. He says, show them this Jesus. Show them Jesus.